Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Tocqueville Program and the Constitutional Studies Program, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you uh, to our event uh, this afternoon. Uh, we're doing one of my favorite uh, things, one of the favorite uh, initiatives that we launched uh, a number of years ago. So I came to Notre Dame about 10 years ago, and I love it here, but I noticed one thing uh, that was sort of peculiar. We have uh, an amazing world-class faculty that are publishing books and important articles all the time. Uh, we send our faculty around the country and around the world to speak on their books, but they never actually speak here at home. And um, actually, one of uh, Professor Cummings' colleagues, Brad Gregory, published this very important book. And I was like, I, it's too long for me to read, but I, wanna, I actually want to hear you, uh, your lecture on it. And he says, yeah, it's kind of funny. We, we, I go all over the place, but I probably won't do a lecture here. So I decided, well, I'll host a lecture for you. And we started a tradition. We used to call it Professors for Lunch. Um, uh, where we, when uh, our faculty friends publish a book, we celebrate it as we should. Uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled uh, about the event we have uh, today. Uh, I'm going to bring up one of our uh, students to uh, properly introduce our speakers. Just a few uh, announcements before I do that. Uh, next week, a week from today, uh, we're having a talk by Professor James Caesar. Uh, be right here in this room at 1230, a week from today on Thursday. He's going to be speaking on James Madison, founder of Founding. Uh, very happy to announce two weeks from tomorrow, uh, uh, Archbishop uh, uh, Charles Chaput, actually his 75th birthday is today, uh, will be speaking uh, on, the title of his talk is Things Worth Dying For. Uh, so that's going to be two weeks uh, from today. And tomorrow um, at uh, 12.30, uh, George Weigel, who's on our panel today, uh, will be speaking tomorrow, 12.30, in the Oak Room. Um, on his new book, which I have my copy right around here somewhere. Um, George's new book is um, The Irony of Modern Catholic History. So come back uh, tomorrow for, for George's talk. That's at 12.30 in the Oak Room. And then we have a complimentary lunch uh, at noon. Uh, get there early if you uh, want lunch. Uh, we have uh, about two dozen uh, undergraduate fellows with the program. Uh, the fellows uh, meet with our speakers, they'll have breakfast uh, with our panelists uh, tomorrow, uh, and uh, they help me choose speakers, they help plan, plan events, and they introduce our speakers. Uh, and we have uh, Meg Garnett, a sophomore theology and constitutional studies major, and she'll introduce our speakers. Thank you. Uh, as Professor Munoz said, my name is Maggie Garnett, and it's my privilege to introduce our discussion panelists for this afternoon. I have been given quite the daunting task to attempt to keep these introductions tolerably short. Um, first, Professor Kathleen Sprouse Cummings is the William W. and Ann Jean Cushwa Director of the Cushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism here at Notre Dame. She is also a professor of history and American studies at Notre Dame and an affiliated faculty member in Gender Studies, Italian Studies, and the Nanavik Institute for European Studies. Professor Cummings' latest book, which we are discussing today, explores how the making of an American saint became a way that Catholics in the United States came to define, defend, and celebrate their identity as Americans. A Saint of Our Own, How the Quest for a Holy Hero Helped Catholics Become American, was published in April of 2019. 
George Weigel is an author and political analyst currently serving as a distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. Weigel is the founding president of the James Madison Foundation. He is the author of the best-selling biography of Pope John Paul II, Witness to Hope, and has most recently published The Irony of Modern Catholic History, How the Church Rediscovered Itself and Challenged the World to Reform, among many other books. Mr. Weigel might remember how I wrote to him in high school to request source materials for a paper I was writing on John Paul II's efforts in the Poland, Polish Solidarity Movement. I was grateful for his willingness to help an eager history student with her project, and I remain a regular reader of his work. Ken Woodward was a senior writer and the religious, religion editor at Newsweek for 38 years before retiring in 2002. We are proud to call him an alumnus of the University of Notre Dame, though he did also attend the University of Michigan Law School. And he is the author of several books, including Making Saints, How the Catholic Church Determines Who Becomes a Saint, Who Doesn't, and Why, and his most recent publication, Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Ascent of Trump. Please join me in welcoming our panelists today. Thank you, Maggie, for that introduction. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. Philip, for this invitation to speak. It is wonderful. We spend an awful lot of time writing these books, so it's wonderful to have a chance to talk about them. So I think it's a great tradition, and it's been wonderful to be included um, both as a panelist and now as, as the author. I also want to thank Jen for her efforts to organize. She's a superb organizer, as, as you know. So I'm just delighted to be here. Thanks, too, for inviting such, um, such, such wonderful interlocutors. And I just want to start by saying that um, both Ken and George, um, I knew them by reputation, of course, first, but I've gotten to know them both personally. And they have been exceptionally generous and also very helpful in this particular project. Ken, as you just heard, is the author of the book on the history of canonization, making saints. And I know there are some students of mine here in, um, in the audience who were in my Sanctity and Society class. And we read that book often. And Ken made a guest appearance um, last spring or fall when uh, I taught that course. And uh, more than that, more than actually publishing the book on the subject, which was very helpful and I highly recommend, uh, Ken donated his papers to the University of Notre Dame archives. Uh, several years ago, and donated them without restrictions, uh, which means that I could read everything, and I did. Um, and I was able to see in the transcripts of many interviews and many notes he took um, back in the 80s, um, the time he spent doing this, and, and it really helped me understand. Ken also introduced me to um, Father Peter Gumpel, and, and through him I met uh, Paolo Molinari, Father Molinari, two longtime postulators at the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints. And Ken got to know them very well. And then I was able to get to know um, particularly Peter well. And, and one of my favorite quotes in the, in, in the book um, is sort of the understatement of the year. Peter Gumpel, who's just an absolutely brilliant Jesuit priest, um, said in an interview that he did with Ken in 1986, uh, he said, I am not gener generally considered to be stupid, which is like the understatement of the century, um, yet 
I had to work for seven years in the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints before I could fully understand the canonization process. Um, I did not have the luxury of working for six or seven years full-time in the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints um, in order to not only understand the process myself, but then try to explain it and try to situate it in an American context. So I needed to take whatever shortcuts I could along the way, and Ken and, and his groundwork he laid was just really instrumental in that. So um, I'm, I'm very grateful for him and his encouragement. <coughs> As for George, George and I met, um, sort of, for the first time at a canonization, the canonization of John Paul II, who was canonized on the same um, day as John the 23rd in 2014. Now, we, didn't, we weren't physically in the same place. Um, we were both commenting on the event for NBC. George was in Rome, actually, at the event. I was in New York City at the studio um, uh, commenting remotely. And because canonization masses take place at 10 in the morning in Rome time, it was I had to show up at the studio at 2.30 AM to go on live coverage at 3 AM. But anyway, George and I would, would go back and forth in, in commenting. And uh, soon after that, we had an opportunity to meet in person. And uh, he's just always wonderful to work with. But of course, he is the biographer of John Paul II. And you can't write a book about canonization without talking about not John Paul II the saint, but John Paul II the namer of saints. He canonized more people than all of his predecessors combined, 482 canonized and 1,341 beatified. Only two of those 482 were US causes, um, and about five or six of the 1,341 blesseds were from the United States. But, um, and I do talk uh, quite a bit about John Paul II and the canonization process, but the most essential thing is that John Paul II, the reason he canonized so many saints, one of the reasons, is that he understood far better than anyone uh, who came before him just how meaningful it was when a population that did not have a saint of its own received one. And he really got that. And that is what my book is about and what that looked like in American history. It's a history of the United States from the late 19th century until the present. It ends with the canonization of Junipero Serra, who became the 12th canonized saint um, with a cause introduced from the United States um, in 2015. The book, um, in, in many ways, had its uh, origins um, when I attended my first canonization, which was the canonization of Brother Andre Bessette, who became, in October 2010, the first saint to be canonized from the Congregation of Holy Cross. And um, I, had been, uh, I had commented on some previous canonizations, including that of Mother Theodore, uh, who was canonized in 2006 as the first saint from Indiana. So that was all very exciting. Um, and I kind of had this idea that I wanted to go to a canonization. So I called, um, when the canonization was announced, I, I reached out to Kerry Temple, the editor of Notre Dame Magazine, and um, suggested that he send me to Rome to like cover the canonization of Brother Andre. I thought I could be like a Roman correspondent or something. And he said, uh, no, we're not sending you to Rome to do that. But, um, but if you want, you can write an article about it. And uh, we'll pay you to write the article, and it'll all work out. So that is, in fact, what I did. I went to Brother Andre's canonization. And because canonizations are such elaborate affairs, um, People are rarely canonized alone. There's usually multiple canonizations on a single day. So I was there with about 5,000 other people in St. Peter's Square on a gorgeous October morning. Um, and a lot of Canadians, 
brother Andre died in Montreal, uh, lived and died in Montreal, and a contingent from Notre Dame, we were all cheering for brother Andre, and we were pretty enthusiastic. Um, I had this um, image in my mind of canonization as a very solemn affair, and it, it turns out it's more like a Notre Dame football Saturday. Um, everybody's like waving flags. and. Um, <coughs> But we were absolutely eclipsed in enthusiasm by the 13,000 people who were there that morning who had traveled from Australia, who had come halfway around the world to witness the canonization of their very first saint, Mary MacKillop. She became the first canonized Australian saint on that morning. So as I was watching them and meeting all these, I mean, Australians really know how to have a party. And um, I was asking them um, about <laughs> what it meant to them to <coughs> saint of, of their own from their country, and I started to be able to think more about the connection between nationalism and sanctity, particularly in countries that are not traditionally Catholic countries, so in countries in which Catholics are, um, have been uh, a minority. So that was kind of the germ of the book, and in fact, uh, the book begins in the 1880s when U.S. Catholics decided to petition the Holy See for a saint of their very own, and um, with a goal of having a national patron saint. Um, Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception had been declared, the, um, the United States had been placed under her patronage in 1846, but what US Catholics wanted was a saint who had lived and walked and died among, um, among them in, in circumstances familiar, as one, um, one saint seeker put it. And so the first people they nominated were um, two Jesuits, Isaac Jogues and René Goupil, um, uh, who had, uh, were French missionaries who died in New France in the 1640s in what became New York State. Um, and they linked their causes with Tekakwita, an indigenous convert to Catholicism, um, who died in, uh, who was, was actually born 10 years after Jogues and Goupil had uh, died, um, had been martyred on, um, in what became New York. And so that was a petition that U.S. bishops sent to the Holy See at the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore, which was a really important meeting historically for U.S. bishops. It's when the U.S. church was trying to think of itself as not just a mission territory anymore, which it was officially classified as under the, um, under the Vatican's um, uh, organization, but a, a, a place that could, um, that had a holiness of its own uh, that had its own saints. So it was really a way that U.S. Catholics could try to assert themselves and, and show the Vatican that holy men and women had lived and died here too. But they also, and this I found really puzzling for a long time, they also believed that canonization of an American saint would also help diminish anti-Catholicism, which was very prevalent in the 1880s and 1890s, as many immigrants from Europe were, were coming um, over, Catholic immigrants, and settling in cities and working in factories. And there was just a lot of anti-Catholicism. And so I found um, uh, church leaders at the time saying, if we could just canonize an American, that'll help diminish anti-Catholicism. Which sounds kind of weird when you think about it, because saints were one of the things that made Catholics really strange and weird in Protestant eyes. But in fact, canonization is about marketing in a lot of ways. And so in telling the stories of these holy men and women, uh, they were able, Catholics were able to say, no, Catholics have been a part of the American experience since the beginning. And so they not only had 
they were not only making the case for holiness to the Vatican, but also to their fellow citizens, many of whom believed that Catholicism was a foreign religion. But the, one of the, the very interesting things um, I found is that I, so this book is, is very much, I study the process um, that I had, it took me a long time to learn um, how complicated it is and convoluted it is. But it's also about the people who promote them and the people who were, who loved them on, in the local cultures from which they emerge. And um, when you look at the American Catholic experience, one of the most interesting things is this dissonance between a church that moves very slowly and an American culture that changes very quickly, adapts easily and quickly. And so what happens with canonization is that the candidates that US Catholics proposed for sainthood, by the time they were actually canonized, um, the US Catholics had sort of moved on to a new vision of what America meant. So by the time Isaac Jogues and René Goupil were canonized, actually as part of a larger group called the North American Martyrs. They dropped Tecaquita. They decided to focus on, the Jesuits decided to focus on their own guys first and come back to her later. That's another story. Um, but they were canonized in 1930. And by that point, US Catholics were very interested in proving that they had been citizens. And so it was a person like Francis Cabrini who kind of had, she hadn't even arrived in the United States until 1889, by the time those earlier causes were underway. Um, and she kind of came out of nowhere. She was an Italian-born sister, so she had home field advantage. Italians always uh, uh, do very well in canonization processes, I've found. Um, and then by the time Cabrini was canonized, actually with lightning speed, um, according to Vatican standards, she was canonized in 1946. U.S. Catholics, this was another new moment for Americans. They had emerged as a global superpower. And uh, church leaders and the laity said, no, we need a saint who was born in America. Cabrini had been born in Italy. So it became Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was kind of the preferred candidate for national patron at that point. And Seton's cause took a very long time. It was first proposed in 1882. Um, that's why she kind of gets on the cover. It's not only about her, but her cause stretched from 1882 until 1975 in part because of a provision in canon law that um, stipulated that women could only petition the Holy See for causes for canonization through a male proxy. So uh, yes, Paul, John Paul II changed this um, in his revision of the rules in 1983. Now sometimes this worked out really just fine. Um, women going to usually a, a, a a priest in an associated congregation, but sometimes it was a disaster. And in Seton's case, it was an absolute disaster. There was a Vincentian priest in charge of her cause for 20 years who um, was far more interested in his own glorification than Seton's saintly uh, glorification. And, and, and so part of, um, part of that is the story of, of the entanglements of that. Um, and then by the time Seton was canonized in 1975, followed very quickly by St. John Newman um, uh, in 1977, uh, everything was about to change as uh, Pope John Paul II revised the process and many more candidates for canonization emerged from the United States. And today there are about 80 odd open causes um, at various stages along the way of Americans. So there's going to be kind of a deluge. Um, but uh, curiously, there is no patron saint of the United States um, still. Uh, that is something that happens after a person is canonized. and um, U.S. Catholics in the 1970s and since were not interested in getting 
a national patron. That petition was never made. So that's um, kind of an interesting conclusion to the story. I think I'll stop there and hear what you have to say and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. First, a, a word of thanks to, um, to Philip uh, Munoz for inviting me uh, to be here uh, and to um, Professor Cummings for this uh, book, uh, which I uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, and had the honor of blurbing, as we say, in the uh, book uh, marketing uh, business. It's great to see uh, Ken Woodward again. Uh, speaking of saints and whatnot, it was Ken who queued up my uh, obituary of uh, John Paul II in Newsweek uh, in 2005. So I'm very grateful for many years of friendship with him. Uh, I suppose one of the reasons I'm very grateful to, to Kathy for this book is that it is a very welcome break uh, from the usual stuff that dominates discussion of the Catholic Church and its affairs these days. Uh, and in, in addition to being a break, uh, it's an important reminder of what the church is really for. The church is in the business of making saints, or as C.S. Lewis put it, making people who can live comfortably with God forever. That was Lewis's definition of a saint. He said, you know, if if any of us were snapped, snatched up to heaven right now, we might feel a little uncomfortable. We wouldn't know how to exactly to behave. The whole, the whole process of becoming someone who can live comfortably with, as Catholics would put it, within the light and love of the Holy Trinity, that, that's what becoming a saint is, and that's what the church is for, uh, because that is every Christian's baptismal destiny. Uh, we were all baptized to be saints. Uh, and we have to become the saints we were baptized to be if we're to realize uh, the full meaning of our, our baptism. The exemplars we call canonized saints who are in the liturgical calendar whom the church formally recognizes as men and women of heroic virtue uh, show us the, the many different ways in which God makes the saints that the church then recognizes. Now, Kathy's book is about saints and America, but before I get into that, I'd like to, to go a bit further, if I may, into uh, a subtext of the book, which is the, the, uh, its reminder to us of how dramatically John Paul II changed the saint-recognizing process. This was not tweaking something. This was overturning it and creating, if I may use a word which I generally dislike uh, in regard to church affairs, a new paradigm uh, of, of how, to, how to recognize uh, saints. Those of you old enough to remember Morris West's first novel, uh, The Devil's Advocate, the novel right before The Shoes of the Fisherman really put him on, on the radar screen. Uh, the Devil's Advocate is about a guy whose whole job in what was then called the Congregation for Rights, was to prove that a candidate for beatification and canonization was really not good. He, he was the devil's advocate. His whole job was to 
prove that this candidate should flunk. That was the process. It was a kind of post-mortem criminal trial uh, where the weight was put on trying to prove that this person was not the great exemplar of heroic virtue uh, that, that it was claimed that he or, he or she was. Now, there, there was something of a point to that uh, in that it, it led to uh, very real care about examining lives in minute detail. But as Kathy documents in, in, in ways that I, I was just simply laughing out loud at several <laughs> points in here, uh, this becomes terribly convoluted and gets caught up in all sorts of goofball ecclesiastical politics, uh, dare I say, financial concerns, and, and all sorts of other stuff. John Paul II, in 1983, um, with the Apostolic Constitution, the, the teacher of divine wisdom, uh, fundamentally altered the, the paradigm for doing this. It shifted from a post-mortem criminal trial in which we're trying to prove that Elizabeth Ann Seton really was not a saint. And if she passes all the tests, she then becomes a saint. To a kind of graduate seminar in history, where we're trying to identify uh, distinctive patterns of heroic virtue in life. A friend of mine in Rome, uh, now a cardinal, is, is on the Congregation for Saints, uh, which is generally not regarded as a particularly sexy appointment in the Roman Curia. And he tells me he loves it because it's like reading a couple of doctoral dissertations every month. These thing, this thing called the positio, the, the presentation of the, of the candidate's life, um, which is basically a, a, a small biography. He says these are very carefully done, and they're fascinating and interesting. So he's happy to be back in school uh, doing this. It's a completely different paradigm. Now, uh, I happen to have been a formal witness for the beatification and canonization cause of John Paul II. Uh, and I can say, I think, without breaching the oath of secrecy that I swore, and assuming that the questions I was asked to answer about Carol Wojtyla are more or less the same that are asked about others, that it's a very interesting experience from a scholarly point of view. Uh, at that point, I had written uh, the first volume of my biography of John Paul II, Witness to Hope, and was working on the second, the end, and the beginning. But I had never, in a sense, read his life through the prism of the virtues, which is what I was asked to do in this extensive questionnaire, analyze this life through the prism of the theological virtues of, of faith, hope, and, and love, uh, the cardinal virtues of, of prudence, justice, courage, and uh, temperance. And then there was a third section called other virtues, uh, which has a story in it which I cannot resist telling, if I may. I think it was question 123 in this extensive list. And the question was, have you ever seen a depiction of the servant of God, how these people are referred to at this stage of the game, have you ever seen a picture of the servant of God with a halo? 
So I called the postulator of the cause, a Polish canonist working in Rome with whom I had become friends, and I said to him, Swavek, what on earth is question 123 about? Ken will probably remember this. He said, he laughed and he said, it's a hangover from the old days. Because when you were trying to prove that the candidate really was not a saint, one of the ways you would try to do that was show that somebody had prematurely painted a halo around them, which was thought to be a sign of potential satanic influence. So I absorbed that and I said, well, Swavek, I think you better send a telegram to every grandmother in Poland and tell her to erase the halos that she has painted around the five portraits of John Paul II uh, in her house. Um, in any event, this, this, this notion of reading a life through the prism of the virtues I found so interesting that I used that template for the, uh, the final section of, of the second volume of my John Paul II biography. One further uh, thought about, about John Paul II and all of this. Why, why did he make the shift uh, from this post-mortem criminal trial, which made such a mess out of what should have been fairly no-brainers? Elizabeth Ann Seton, Neumann, Francis Cabrini. By the way, a check signed by Francis Cabrini is in the living room of the Archbishop of New York today. It's quite interesting to see a check for $25 signed Francis X. Cabrini. Why, why, did, he, why did he shift that? Uh, I think it had something to do with an experience I had with his successor, Cardinal Franciszek Macharski, in 1997. I was, I'd known Cardinal Macharski for some time. I was beginning to work on Witness to Hope. And after a very extensive conversation about their lives together, his and Wojtyla's, their experiences during the war, etc. I said kind of out of the blue, uh, Your Eminence, how many beatification causes are underway in, in Krakow today? I thought it might be five or six. It was 50. It was 50. Many of them were martyrs of the Second World War and the Communist period, but others, and here I think we come to the crucial point for, for John Paul II, others were quite ordinary people, looked like quite ordinary people on the surface, who had lived uh, lives of, of heroic virtue. One of those causes was of uh, a layman, a tailor, a man with an eighth grade education named Jan Tiranowski. <coughs> Excuse me who happened to be the guy who introduced Karol Wojtyla during the Second World War to the works of uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and the Marian piety of Louis Grignon de Montfort. For this seemingly quite normal, even obscure, uh, Taylor was a self-taught uh, specialist in, in Carmelite spirituality uh, and a genuine mystic uh, and that was one example. And the other one, which is perhaps even more illustrative, is, is that of a woman named Hanna Kurzhanovska, who was just beatified, I believe, two years ago. Uh, she was the daughter of a famous Polish literature professor at the Jagiellonian University. She had herself uh, become a nurse. And uh, when Wojtyla became the Archbishop of Krakow in 1964, he asked her to form a, 
ministry uh, to elderly people, shut-ins at home, a medical ministry uh, in aid of all of those who were falling through the cracks of, of the communist medical system, otherwise known as Medicare for Everyone. Um, she did that for the next 30 years, very quietly, no ostentation, never married, no public recognition, but a life of heroic virtue lived in a quiet way. And the lesson of this, I think, uh, that Wojtyla took is that as grace is everywhere, so sanctity is everywhere. And perhaps even more importantly, sanctity is not for the sanctuary alone. Sanctity is not simply something for clergy and consecrated religious. It's for everyone. Another facet of Kathy's book that I particularly appreciated because it's still relevant uh, today uh, is that it reminds us that Rome has never really understood the United States. Uh, and by Rome, in this case, I mean the permanent bureaucracy of, of the Vatican, has never really understood the United States and the particular way of being Catholic that evolved here. I think you see that time and again in the stories of Elizabeth Ann Seton, John Neumann, and Francis Xavier Cabrini. Now it happens in, in somewhat different ways. There is a very important uh, an interesting and I believe beautiful cause underway right now uh, on behalf of Father Vincent Capodanno, uh, a Marinol missionary who um, from Staten Island who joined the Navy Chaplain Corps during the Vietnam War, uh, won the Medal of Honor posthumously for rescuing uh, dying and wounded Marines, uh, during a, uh, a battle in the highlands of Vietnam. That cause is being slowed down, or there are fears that it is being slowed down today, for fear of offending the Vietnamese government with which the Vatican is in some delicate diplomatic relations over the appointment of bishops. Uh, another no-brainer that has been absurdly slowed down, in my view, is that of a, another Marinoler, Bishop Francis Ford, uh, who was martyred in China in 1952. Uh, and that cause has long been put on ice by the Vatican, a craven attitude shared at least for some time by the sponsoring Diocese of Brooklyn for fear of offending the Chinese regime, which is, of course, making new martyrs by the gross these days whether they're house church martyrs or Catholic martyrs or Muslim martyrs or Falun Gong martyrs. Uh, the Ford case has been resurrected, uh, but it's still moving much more slowly uh, than it should. He's obviously a martyr and should be recognized as such. So, um, like everything else in the church, this saint-recognizing business is subject to human foibles and fears. But it's an important process because it reminds us of the church's essential reason for being. And I hope Kathy's book, among other things, reminds American Catholics who are too often oblivious to their saints. How many American Catholics know who Saint Theodore Guerin is or Saint Marilyn Cope or any of these other remarkable 
women of, of recent canonizations. It reminds American Catholics, particularly at a time of, of some uh, distress and, and, and anger, of the great uh, cloud of witnesses uh, that surrounds us, uh, some of whom speak in quite familiar accents. And in that way, while Kathy's book is obviously a work of serious historical scholarship, uh, a saint of our own is also a real contribution to the new evangelization. Thank you. When I finished my book, Making Saints, I thought I was through with saints. I like to move on to other things and have, but now the saints keep coming back at me. This past week, I got a, uh, a note from a uh, Notre Dame uh, graduate professor for the studies at, um, at DePaul uh, saying that uh, there was a uh, conscientious objector, a Catholic, in World, to World War I and can we um, put together a, a committee to, to move this fellow um, uh, toward canonization? Uh, the Archbishop of Denver didn't want to get involved, and they thought maybe um, the Cardinal of Chicago would. And um, I wanted to tell them, because this is going to be the end of my remarks as well as my beginning. I'm sorry, it's going to be repeated at the end. Um, you need, you need people spontaneously thinking that someone is a saint. And they typically go to their grave and they, they have all kinds of things that the Vatican looks for. So in the beginning, it's the most, dem what I say, the most democratic process in a not terribly democratic church. It's vox populi to begin with. And you see it, of course, uh, in the case of Romero and uh, Dorothy Day, things like that. Um, so that's one thing that happened this week. And then I got a call saying, will you come and talk about, um, about Cardinal Newman because he's going to be um, uh, canonized in the fall. And um, the miracle for him came from Juliet. And it was worked through the um, canon lawyers in Chicago of all places. Now this makes me smile because when I visited the oratory in England that he started, uh, and talked to the, uh, the priests there, uh, they were really upset that he might be made a saint. Um, terrible bother, you know. Uh, we'll have to seal up his clothes. You can go see them now, but you won't. And they'll have to dig up his body. Oh, it's a terrible bother. You know? um, the British aren't big on saints. And on the other hand, um, the Italians love them and will go into church and argue with the saint of their favor before they get around to, you know, Jesus. And if Mary's there, forget about it. Uh, I just told you there's the old line. If you go to Rome and um, you ask anybody you meet in the street, do you believe in God? And they'll say, nah, but Mary is his mother. And... Um, so that tells you something about the role in, of the cult uh, of uh, saints as we have it. I was really pleased um, to, to be a part of um, Kathy's uh, process of writing this book, if only for one reason. I had two of my favorite people meet each other, Kathy and Peter Gumpel. 
and she rightly praises him. Um, at one point, I was interviewing Peter, and there was this terrible crash outside of Borgo Santo Spiritu, which is a terrible neighborhood, and crunching of fenders and so forth. Peter stops, and he gets up, and he said, excuse me, I want to go see if I can help. Um, I am, after all, first of all, a priest. And you tend to forget that, in a way, and, but they don't. Um, and he was the only... Here's the thing, all those Jesuits around there, he was the only one down in the streets. Remarkable man. Um, the uh, number two under Father Arupe, uh, uh, head of the Jesuits, uh, vicar general, uh, said to me, Peter's the smartest man we have in Rome. Now he said in Rome, there might be one or two in, in, around here. Um, so, uh, among the su few suggestions that I sent Kathy after reading the manuscript for this book uh, was to add a couple of paragraphs early on that would situate her work within the wider orbit of the great French historian of the Middle Ages, André Vauchet. Now, finally, when I saw her footnotes, I see she got something, wedged something in there. But I'm glad she didn't do anything more because it now gives me an opportunity to say a few words about how Kathy's book creatively builds on uh, Vauchet's pioneering work. And this is, <laughs> this is the main thing. Now, this is the yeah. um, Vauchet's masterpiece, Sainthood in the uh, Later Middle Ages, not translated into English until 1997, describes in rich detail and scholarly ingenuity how the question of who should be venerated as a saint, and therefore the idea of what constitutes sanctity, shifted from the 13th century through the 15th century. Since saints and their stories constituted the bulk of popular literature in those days, the study of them takes us deep into the mental fabric of this historical period, what the French historians, or some of them call mentalites, as well as ecclesiastical politics and policies. And here I'd like to give you some of the flavor of his immense learning in order to show how Kathy's book sort of fits in with this tradition. From his analysis of the canonization processes from 1181 to 1431, including uh, many of them that were rejected, Vaucher found that prior to 1270, sainthood was bestowed on a large and diverse company of candidates, bishops who exemplified the right use of authority and wealth. Um, Laity who labored on behalf of social justice, penitents whose conversion from sinful ways provided the ordinary faithful with examples they could emulate, monastic reformers, and above all, the founders of new mendicant orders like Dominic and Francis of Assisi. By the end of the 13th century, however, the number and kinds of saints narrowed. Pious royalty and uh, pastorally sensitive bishops seemed less appropriate as models of holiness. This is what I'd be surprised. Uh, martyrs, too, fell from favor. And those that were canonized, like Thomas Beckett, were honored for coming to the defense of the church. Thus, by the end of the Middle Ages, Vauchet concludes, quote, the identification of sanctity with martyrdom was no more than a mere memory. Well, fortunately, that memory's been revived many times over. Uh, moreover, though, as the notion of what constitutes holiness shifts, uh, those in charge of promoting causes, a process which typically 
lasted at least a half a century and very often a century or more, um, rewrote their candidates' life stories, which is the text on which the saint makers judge the candidates' worthiness to fit the new models of what a holy life should be. Finally, across the long arc of the Middle Ages, Vaucher illustrates the underlying tension between the laity who looked to saints for protection, intercession, and miracles, and the church's educated elites who emphasized the role of saints as models of how Christians should live. Being in charge of the process, the elites won out. But to this day, especially in the cases, as I mentioned before, of somebody like Romero and Dorothy Day, the lady continued to anticipate formal education by bestowing uh, formal canonization by bestowing popular recognition on those they regard as saints. Think of how long in Latin America Romero has been a saint. Uh, uh, one of the many delights to be found in a saint of our own is the way in which Kathy shows how what American Catholics wanted in a saint, as Catholic and as an American, shifted over time. The question on their minds was, what should that saint's story say about the American Catholic experience? Thus, like Vaucher, Cummings uses her material to reveal the shifting mentalité of American Catholics as they found increasing assurance of their dual identities as Americans and as Catholics. Kathy, your, your, your title is perfect. It's so much better than the one you were working with, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Nor are Americans alone in demanding a saint of their own. That's been the cry of Catholics wherever the faith has spread, which uh, George here knows as well as anyone why Pope John uh, Paul II canonized so many of them, giving priorities to those countries who did not have a saint of their own. Now, my story along those lines that I like best, um, it goes back to the time of Cyril and Methodius when Rome was sending out saints to the, uh, the heathen to the north. And what would happen is the saints would go out and they'd preach the gospel and try to make converts and eventually they'd get killed by the people. And then the people would turn around and claim they had their own saint. Um, so uh, there was a peril to all of that. Um, still, and, they, and these, of course, were saints of their own. Still, until I read your book, Kathy, I didn't know that Americans wanted a patron saint of their own. I thought the Immaculately Conceived Virgin Mary was our patron. Perhaps you can uh, tell us something about that distinction. You did already mention that. Um, for instance, I wonder whether the abandonment of the desire for a national patron had anything to do with the dedication of the United States to the Immaculate Conception and the Shrine in Washington, D.C. Uh, I also wonder whether the effect of the 1960 election had on the felt need to have an American Catholic hero. Recall um, Father Andrew Greeley, I assume that name is familiar, at least to the older among you, um, suggested that the martyred president be declared a saint. Dr. Kerman. Did he say that too? Well, Annie could be wrong most of the time. Um, <laughs> your, uh, your book reinforces the truth that saints are polysemous figures capable not only of embodying different meanings, but of refracting them as well. In other words, they are remarkably malleable. 
which becomes deliciously apparent in your later chapters dealing with recent saints and causes. Uh, I want to talk about briefly uh, about some women saints. The first is Dorothy Day, not canonized yet, but widely recognized. Anyhow, um, and how in announcing the initiation of her cause, Cardinal John O'Connor foreground, as, uh, as, as Kathy points out, her um, uh, a day's regret of her pre-conversion abortion as if uh, that were the main reason she was worthy of an imitation. Kathy, you aren't the first person, male or female, to bristle at that. But there is more to be said. First, Cardinal O'Connor was the fiercely assertive chair of the bishop's uh, committee, uh, pro-life committee. Um, he loved when he came to New York to wear his, um, what, the baby feet pin in his lapel. And I loved it that he wore it to his first um, um, uh, first interview with the editorial board of the New York Times, which had a rather different view of things. They found that rather assertive, and uh, indeed it was. Um, secondly, he really did nothing to push the cause. He announced it. Um, it, it was up to the Claritian fathers who do, uh, to pick it up and do the work. And third, speaking as someone who uh, gave testimony at the, her New York tribunal, I heard in, uh, there uh, no mention of abortion, and I got no sense at all that um, uh, her... Uh, regret for, for her early abortion was a frame for the cause. In other words, this wasn't going to be a, um, another St. Augustine from, um, you know, sinner to saint. Um, in point of fact, anything that happened before conversion is not, not a material for a cause. Uh, secondly, and more broadly, when you write about women religious and their ambivalence about pursuing a, a, a cause for one of their own, uh, that ambivalence is certainly there, that's certainly what you say is true. But it owed a great deal to the Second Vatican Council. Um, on the one hand, the council urged religious orders to study their and recover their founders' specific charism and then devote themselves anew to it. And in doing so, right after the council, um, some orders of women came to feel that their founders' lives spoke to the contemporary world, and in some cases looked like proto-feminists. And so some communities went on to pursue a cause. The point I'd like to emphasize here is that in doing so, they inevitably rescued their founder from the pieties of the past and refashioned her, I almost said refurbished her, but I guess that's true too, uh, into a figure of contemporary relevance. Again, we see the malleability of saints. On the other hand, some orders thought the council's call to serve the modern world precluded um, huge expense uh, of, um, of mounting a cause. And when I say serve the modern world, it meant get out of the convents and the Catholic schools they were teaching, big mistake in my judgment, and go out directly to serve. But that did happen. Um, someone would work for the state and the state welfare office and so forth, and then live in the community at night. Um, 
to these uh, uh, women religions, it seemed vain and self-serving to spend their worldly treasure on, in that way when so many people were in need. And then there were those like Daniel Berrigan who opposed the canonization of Dorothy Day, whom he knew well, because it would turn her, he said, into a plaster saint of the church and thus um, was, could be easily dismissed rather than remaining a living uh, saint of the people. Uh, Kathy takes up this point of, of what do you gain when you, when you canonize someone, and I think you do, do that very well. But there was this disturbing sen sense, and Berrigan wasn't the only one, but he was a, a, a figure of, of, of public recognition, that somehow being a saint of the church would turn you into not something living, but something dead and in the past, and as he said, easily dismissible. And he didn't want Dorothy to go that way. Much better, he said, imitate her life, go out and do what she did. Well, there's no way, reason why you can't do both. Um, the pursuit of a cause may be tedious, as someone in your book says, but is it really so expensive? Years ago, the pseudonymous Xavier Wren wrote in The New Yorker that the canonization of, um, I don't know whether it was Newman or Drexel, uh, no, I think it must have been Newman, cost a million dollars, but he knew not whereof he spoke. In fact, the total cost was a third of that, and most of that money went for the celebrations in Rome. The cost of the process itself was $124,000 spread out over 23 years. And the reason it's not so expensive is that, um, at least in those days, um, uh, the, uh, the folks who did this were, had, a, had a vow of, of, uh, of poverty. Um, and they worked rather cheaply, and I think that's pretty much the case today. In any case, given the gushing outflow of church funds because of, or, uh, of the clerical abuse and, and the political and financial exploitation of that scandal, um, I suspect we will not see many new American causes initiated for a while. Uh, only Father Hesburgh, I think, might have found a way to circumvent this. Um, after Holy Cross brother Andre Bessette was canonized in 2010, Ted told me, quote, we got brother Andre made a saint, now we've got to work on, fa on Father Soren, end of quote. Uh, against my better judgment, I like to think he's working on it. Um, but, um, uh, but, but I want to reiterate again that um, that there has to be a groundswell of ordinary folks claiming to see in the deceased the marks of a saint. And um, if that doesn't happen, um, nothing else goes on in Rome. I'll give you a very quickly example and I'll let it go. Uh, ABC 2020 um, did a segment on my book and, I, and uh, um, I knew they wanted to go to Rome. Everybody wants to go over to Rome, okay? Even, you know, I think it's Dan Brownville. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I said, okay, meet me at, at, at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church um, at noon uh, on Wednesday. And they walk into the church, of course, it's empty. And this is the, you know, a, a, a perfect architectural expression of the gathered church of the Reformation. And I said, you guys are the visual guys. What do you see and what do you feel? looking around and looking around. And I said, well, you see, um, 
colored windows, stained glass windows, but no figures in them at all, just colors. And you see before you an altar and a pulpit. Uh, I'm sorry, a pulpit and a, a uh, organ. Uh, no altar. Um, uh, that's because the experience here is oral, oral. Uh, it's not visual. And, and the, the Protestant imagination tends not to be visual, tends to be, and you find it in their hymns. So I said, let's go to a Catholic church. Well, we went to the kitschiest Catholic church in New York, the old St. Agnes, when, before it burned down. And I mean, it's wall-to-wall statue. I mean, there's Lucy with, the, with her eyes on a plate, and there's Mother Cabrini over here, and it's hushed. There's a red lamp glowing, and people quiet. And it's peopled, and there's... Christ in the, in, the, uh, in the tabernacle. And I said, if you don't feel the difference between these two places that I've taken you, then there's no point in going to Rome because all you're going to meet are men sitting at desks, typing and writing. And the, the irony of it, you like irony, it's in your book, the irony of it, imagine you're a, in quote, saint maker, you're working in the congregation, and you're sitting at tables like this one, and you're reading these great stories about martyrs and people that do wonderful things, and all you can do is sit and admire and make notes. So there is a, a, a kind of irony, uh, and, um, and you have to give them credit uh, because it, it's, it's, it, that's, that's tedious work. That's tedious work, and to find people enthusiastic about it and to get them to go over there and work on it is very hard to do, and I'm glad they do, and thank you. Did you want to respond to? Just, uh, respond yeah, sure, please. To, very briefly, thank you both so much. Um, uh, I'm laughing, Dan Brownsville, the other thing I did when I went to Brother Andre's canonization in, in 2010, I decided to go to the Vatican Archives for the first time, and I had an image that it was going to be a, a lot more exciting than it actually is. It's actually pretty boring. It's kind of exciting to walk in, and you kind of, you know, but then once you're actually there, it's it's pretty boring. But um, but anyway, I've, re I've returned many times, um, and it, it really is just a wonderful experience. George, um, thank you for what you said about the book. Uh, the postulator for Catherine McCauley um, an Irish, the founder of the Sisters of Mercy, recently talked about uh, we canonize people to remind us uh, that we are holy and that we can be holy. And I think that that's um, something I took away from you from the book. You know, I wrote about a lot of conflict and competition and uh, a lot of the causes competing against each other, a lot of not very saintly behavior. And um, in fact, a priest friend of mine who has worked in Rome for many years read the book and said, uh, it's a good book. It didn't do much for my faith, I have to tell you. <laughs> and I actually had the opposite reaction in writing it, that um, to me, the holiness of the people that I wrote about actually shone through all of the, um, all of the sin that was often involved in the process. In terms of virtues, I think, um, you know, for me, I was also interested not only in uh, heroic virtues as the church defines them, but the American virtues that the promoters often said. So Cardinal Spellman talked about Elizabeth Ann Seton, of a woman of incredible efficiency. Uh, Francis Cabrini was described as a real estate magnet. Um, the Redemptress spent four decades looking for proof of John Newman's citizenship, um, which mattered not at all to his cause but mattered a great deal to them to be able to prove that he had naturalized as a citizen. And, you know, to your point that uh, Rome... Like Obama, like Obama. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> 
to your point that Americans never really understood Rome, I think um, uh, that Rome never really understood Americans. I think Americans uh, never really understood Rome mm. in many ways. And, and so the Roman officials, one of the great things about the archives is you're looking at these Romans going, what are these Americans thinking? I mean, who cares how many schools she founded and how many, that doesn't actually matter. Just a brief story about John Newman, and I do pronounce it Newman because I'm from Philadelphia and that's where he was from and that's how we say it, even though it's technically probably, uh, you're correct, and Neumann, and it's not the same as Cardinal John Newman who will be canonized um, in just a few weeks. But um, to your point about heroic virtue, um, the Redemptorist, his religious congregation, uh, John Newman's cause was the very first sent from the United States. It was sent, um, <coughs> the first process uh, underway in the United States in 1888, actually. And um, the Philadelphia Catholics who sponsored it made so many mistakes. They asked the wrong questions. They had, uh, it was just a mess, such a mess that when it got to Rome, um, they were appalled there, an Italian Redemptorist stepped in to save the day. But the problem became that John Newman, who was Bishop of Philadelphia between 1852 and 1860, um, you know, they were kind of like underwhelmed by his story. They said, well, he was clearly like a good guy, but he didn't really do anything heroic. He was kind of just what any priest or bishop would be expected to do. So this battle went on for about 20 years with the Italian Redemptorists really trying to make this case because Newman had been their first American vocation, so they really wanted to, to get him canonized. And finally, um, Pope Benedict um, uh, agreed in 1921 uh, to say that holiness does not only consist of extraordinary acts, but it can consist of doing ordinary acts in an extraordinary way. So he was declared venerable, meaning he practiced heroic virtue. So that was in 1921. And then um, he actually, that, that decree was cited in Lumen Gentium uh, in Vatican II as proof of ordinary holiness. So it was a good moment for the Redemptorist because he had, Seton had beaten him to beatification. Um, she, uh, they were supposed to be beatified on the same day in 1963 and Cardinal Spellman of New York wanted Seton to have her own day. So he intervened and got Newman's delayed, but at least Newman got in the documents of Vatican II. Um, just that to connect to a point that, that Ken made, um, one of the two Americans canonized by John Paul II was Philippine Duchenne. And her sisters, the RSC, the uh, Society of the Sacred Heart, the RSCJs, had actually stopped pursuing her cause after Vatican II for the reasons that Ken suggested. But Pope John Paul II was planning his second visit to the United States and um, wanted to canonize um, an American. And uh, so he actually went to the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints and said, do you have somebody? Um, uh, a woman would be nice, not from Philadelphia, he said, <laughs> um, which is interesting. I think it has to do with the fact that Catherine Drexel's cause was underway, and, and mm. she actually became the second person, um, that second American that he canonized. So John Paul II actually uh, sought out a particular cause, and the RSCJs took some, it took some persuading to get them to, to move forward with their cause, but they eventually did. Um, yeah, Ken, uh, thank you for, for your comments. What Ken didn't share is when, do you remember this? When I, I shared the manuscript and he left it on the hood of his car and drove away from the Mars Inn um, and it went flying on the toll road or something. I remember, I, this is, does an author need to hear this? You know, like, and someone stopped and helped you pick up all the, is that, yeah, it was. It, and he'll be a saint someday. <laughs> 
but um, I do appreciate it. I did not cite Vache as much as, uh, as I probably should have. I was very influenced by a historian named Peter Burke, who wrote a wonderful short article called How to Make a Counter-Reformation Saint, in which he looks at the causes for uh, the successful causes in the um, Counter-Reformation. And, and it was there that I understood the canonization can tell us a lot more about the people promoting the saints than it does about the actual holy men and women themselves. Peter Umpel, again, um, Peter is uh, 94 years old. Um, when I received my first copies of the book in March, I was going to Rome in June, and I was bringing different copies to different archives. But for a 94-year-old man, you FedEx it to Rome, which is what I did. Um, and so I, I sent it to him, and he sent me a note in his wonderful, uh, very neat handwriting saying that he would be very glad to receive me in June and would be ready to discuss the book. And I was very nervous um, because I thought he, you know, this is someone who knows more than anything. And as always, he was, he was so gracious, and he said, I've worked at the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints for over 60 years, and I didn't think I could learn anything new. Uh, and he said, but I really did, and I didn't know very much about these Americans. So um, anyway, he was so uh, gracious and, and generous, and, um, and I, in, in the story that you told, I, I, I very much resonate with that. Um, the other person I met um, through Peter Gumpel was Monsignor Robert Sarno, who um, works in a, a Brooklyn diocesan priest who has worked at the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints for many years, one of the few Americans to do that. And it was him who actually told me there was no patron saint of the United States. Um, our lay, uh, the Immaculate Conception, that was uh, declared in 1846. And the distinction is uh, someone who actually, a person who actually walked on American soil, which of course Mary did not do. And um, Europeans could be really condescending about this fact to Americans um, before Americans had any canonized saints. Um, they would say things like, well, St. Louis, the city, has nothing to do with St. Louis, the saint. Uh, maybe someday Americans will have uh, actual saints. So that seems to, be, um, seems to be the distinction. I think there's a lot more I, I could say. I'm fascinated to talk to you about Dorothy Day, that the actual, uh, her, her pro-life, um, her, her malleability as a pro-life saint did not come up in the actual testimony, which is not something I had access to. But for me, it just was proof of my thesis, which was that canonization can reveal a lot more about the priorities of the people promoting the saints. So for, um, uh, to say in the 1990s that she can be a patron saint of women who have had abortions and regretted it uh, makes a lot of sense from the perspective of the 1990s, mm. not from the time in which Dorothy Day actually had the abortion. So it's a fascinating case, and I don't know. Um, I, but uh, Cardinal Dolan uh, stopped by to tell me that he liked the book, and he's very eager to pursue her cause. So you might see that. I will stop there. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure, George. Can I make just two brief points? One is just, I think, a piece of historical information. I mean, what, what's with this huge number of JP2 saints? I, I don't know the actual statistics on this. They're not fresh in my mind. But I believe a high percentage of the actual canonizations were uh, causes from the Spanish Civil War, the Mexican Cristero uprising, uh, and the communist stuff that had been put on hold by Paul VI hmm. for various political considerations. And he said, enough of that is enough. And I think it's probably at least a couple of hundred of those 400. The other thing I have to say, 
as a native Baltimorean and virtual lifelong Marylander, it is a bloody outrage for New York to claim Elizabeth Ann Seton. <laughs> All Elizabeth Ann Seton got as a Catholic from New York was getting kicked out of New York, whence she came to Baltimore and Archbishop Carroll and then to Emmitsburg. First time I saw John O'Connor as Archbishop of New York, there's this huge, you know, 15-foot-tall portrait of Mother Seton in the anteroom to the Archbishop's office. I said, you've got your nerve. You guys threw her out. It's not that there today. Spellman? It's not. Well, he was, Spellman was Spellman, right? I mean, anyway, I, I need to register that little piece of uh, nativist concern. Okay. Let's get as many uh, questions as we can. So I'm going to ask the panel to, to be uh, brief in their response. So we have a tradition. We always invite a student to ask the first question. Any students with, uh, with a question? Okay, Mar, um, Mar stand up. Uh, introduce yourself and wait for the microphone. And can we have your microphone's on? Is that right? Is it on? I think it's on, yeah. Hi, thank you for speaking today. My name's Mara Bradley. I'm a senior here at Notre Dame. I'm a member of the Tocqueville program. I'm actually also from Philadelphia, so nice to hear that. Um, my question is actually for you, uh, Professor Cummings. You mentioned that there's no patron saint in the United States. If you had to suggest one saint that you've interacted in your studies with, who would you pick as the patron saint of the US? So I have to say that in the epilogue, <coughs> um, which is, uh, could be a whole other book. Um, I, I actually think that the American Catholic experience is, is so diverse, I don't think it could be captured by any one person. Um, so I think there should be multiple uh, other, you know, Ireland has Patrick and Bridget and Kevin, and uh, so I, I'm all for as many as, as we can. I did get contacted by the Elizabeth uh, Ann Seton Shrine in Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, and the director of the shrine said, just read your book. I love it, and we're going to do it. We're going to try to get her declared um, patron saint of the United States. So I'm happy to support that. But I actually think, um, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's just that the complexity of the American Catholic experience maybe uh, can't be captured by any one person, except Father Hesburgh, of course. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen, there's a where's oh, are you going to hear me? I just wanted to put in a pitch. What's your name? Uh, Cornelia Conley is a cause that I support uh, strongly. And I'm hoping to find somebody who will either do a movie or <laughs> several part series on her. She's a 19th century figure, um, a religious order, the one that uh, came out of the, the order of, the, of Sisters of the Holy Child. They run a lot of schools. Her story is a, is a Victorian soap opera. But it is an absolutely wonderful story, and I'll tell you one of the one of the major points. In she has a, a, several children; she's a convert, and she drops one in boiling oil. And I have to think her order, whether she finally was uh, asked to, to start one, uh, was called the Divine Child, partly for that reason. So I urge you look it up uh, on, on Google or see it, the story in my book. It's an absolutely wonderful tale. Rose Hawthorne is about Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter yeah. who founded the Dominican Sisters for the care of the terminally ill with cancer. And one of her sisters told me last Friday they think they've got a miracle. Good. Yeah. Family. She's also... Yeah. Very interesting. I want to mention one other thing that George talked about. He was talking about um, going uh, through the virtues for J.P. Dewey's, right? Okay. Um, Newman 
has a comment on the whole process. And he said, they slice their lives into, into pieces. Virtue this, this shows this virtue, this virtue. And he did not like it. And what I found developing, and especially in the cause for this woman Conley, what I call, you, you have to look for the harmony of holiness. It's a whole life and, and, and all, they don't have to have all the virtues. At one time they, they, they tried to make it that the case. And how they fit together and how maybe perhaps one virtue emerges at one time in response to one situation and then another. So it's another way of doing, um, another way of doing narrative theology is what it is, but doing it well. And some days I'd like to see some really good English professor go in there and see how well these positions are actually written. Uh, Mike? Yeah, uh, thank you so much again. Um, there was a story out of New York this summer that they had put out a survey of women that they could recognize with statues in New York City. And Frances Cabrini was one of those women, and she received the most votes. And then they announced that she would not be getting a statue. Um, and there was some noise about whether this was fair, what, what had caused them to make that decision. I guess I was curious if you knew anything about that and what you think the significance of a statue recognizing a woman like Cabrini would have been in a place like New York City, where she obviously served for so long. Uh, I did not hear about that. I know that there was a uh, street in New York named after her to mark the centenary of her death, which was in 2017. Um, but I think uh, I think Cabrini is uh, a remarkable figure. But one of the interesting things is she became the first citizen of the United States to be canonized. So she, the United States, really took her on as uh, as their citizen saint, their first citizen saint. But one of the um, things I learned about her life was that she really wasn't American at all. It's true she did become a naturalized citizen, but she did that because her lawyer advised her to do that. And she would have more, um, more help. Uh, it'd be easier for her to acquire property and things. Um, so while her citizenship was a really big deal on the American side, if you read Italian biographies of her, they never mention that she naturalized. And in fact, she founded 67 foundations um, on, in South America, in Europe, and in North America, and made 24 ocean journeys um, all around. And if you look at a map of those journeys, which is in her Positio in the uh, Vatican archives, it's a marvelous map, the United States is just part of a triangle. It's not the center. And so when Pope Francis visited uh, the United States in 2015, Cabrini's congregation in New York was really hoping he would stop by there, and he came very close. But he didn't, and he didn't mention her at all, and they were really disappointed. Uh, because he was familiar with her congregation from Buenos Aires. Mm. He had, and um, I was able to talk to them afterwards, and I said, you know, Pope Francis wasn't born in the United States. He doesn't think of Cabrini as an American. She's a global figure. And I really think she was a citizen of the world before we use that term. And um, I think that's her, that's her significance. So I would personally have loved a statue of her in New York, but I, I think... Um, uh, it, she, she belongs more to the universal church. And one, one symptom of this is that she was declared patron uh, of the emigrants in, mm. in 1950. So um, la, la patrona degli emigrante. So the same in Italian as in English, the emigrants. And in the United States, it's mistranslated, including by people in her congregation, as patron of immigrants. Mm. People who are fluent in Italian still mistranslated that way. In, in the UK, where she also had foundations, they call her the patron of the emigrants. So it's just, it's a reflection of American exceptionalism. Mm. You know, may, let's make it all about us mm. when in fact um, she wasn't. So Pope Francis talks about her all the time, 
but um, he, he thinks about her. So, I mean, I, I would have loved a statue. I'll have to, I'm sorry that didn't happen. Okay, uh, some more questions, please. Hello, Damien Zorro, I teach in the writing program here. So I'm wondering, in the case of Elizabeth Ann Seton, for the many decades that her cause was open, this kind of follows up with something that Ken was saying. Is there a detectable popular piety devoted to her that maybe waxes and wanes, or is it consistent over time, or did it play a role? Could you speak more about that, what we know about it? Absolutely, yes, there was a pretty consistent uh, devotion to her on the local level, um, really not just in New York and, and Maryland, um, the two cities with which where she actually lived, but because the congregation she founded, the Sisters of Charity, spread so, um, so far throughout the United States, her name was really well known. And because she had been a convert, um, she was kind of seen as affirmation that, you know, that, that, that she had chosen Catholicism. She had come from a Protestant elite family, or she had married into an elite family. So her name was, was used um, even before she was officially canonized. But the problem had to do with the fact that um, her congregation split in the 1840s, late 1840s, 25 years after she died. But they split into diocesan communities because of the machinations of a bishop, of Bishop John Hughes in New York mostly, and then it just went on from there. And the original community in Emmitsburg aligned with the French Daughters of Charity in 1850. So this was after Seton died. She had nothing to do with that. Um, but the daughters maintained that that had been her greatest wish to become the American province of a French congregation. And the communities that remained diocesan, the Sisters of Charity, said, oh no, she always wished to be independent. So there were these two competing stories. And canonization, that, and they could have gone on, they could have coexisted forever, but not if she's going to become a canonized saint. So the sisters actually had to come together and come to terms with their, their tangled history. Um, and that was part of the delay. And then this, this other priest that I mentioned as well. But no, um, American, American Catholics' knowledge of Seton and their devotion to her remained pretty consistent throughout. Um, her name was one of the best known in, in America. because um, Also because her nephew became um, uh, bishop of uh, uh, Newark, New Jersey, the first bishop of Newark. He founded Seton Hall and was buried with her. So he played a big role in that and as well. And the Archbishop of Baltimore. Right, and the Archbishop, yes, I can't slight, uh, slight Baltimore. I, I'm yes. going to get a question in before. Uh, a question before George starts talking about the Orioles. Um, <laughs> what was her an initial spark? What led you to uh, think, wow, looking at the process of canonization, I can learn about America and learn, learn about our cultural history. Was it an article you read? How, it's a fascinating idea, but how did, how, how did it come about? Well, um, when I was writing my first book, um, I did some research in the archives at Emmitsburg, Maryland, and um, I found Cardinal Gibbons, um, well, he was Archbishop of Baltimore then, before he was Cardinal. He visited her community in 1882 and said, American saints are very rare birds. Um, they don't, uh, we don't have very many of them. And uh, he was urging the sisters to start her cause uh, because he said it'll make us more American. So that I kind of tucked that away. Mother Theodore Guerin's canonization was another um, 
interesting time for me. And then, you know, watching those Australians um, go crazy over Mary McKillop in, in 2010, seeing them get their first saint and what it meant to them uh, was part of it. So yeah, the more I started, when I started the book, I thought I was just going to write about the American side. I didn't want to deal with all that Rome stuff because um, it was so complicated. <laughs> but I, then I wanted, in the, in the end, I wound up blending it together. So it toggles, it's both about the ordinary people who loved and invoked these saints, and then about the people in power who could have it formally recognized. So um, yeah, yeah change, it was a great way to look at change over time, which is the historian's bread and butter. Did, did you find a life that you didn't know much about or nothing about before you started the book that you have a particular devotion to now or interest oh, in? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I have a different, uh, different purchase on a lot of them. Um, Seton, a life that I knew fairly well. I think Mother Theodore's story George, I take your point that who knows about her, but I'm trying to do my very best. So Mother Theodore Guerin um, was canonized in, in 2006, and I was teaching a class here, um, my class in Catholic history, and I just talked to a friend of mine who's a sister of Providence, and I said, is there anyone who could like come and talk about what that was like to be... To, to promote a saint, I, had, I knew nothing. And um, a, a sister who was her vice postulator did come and, and talk to my class. And I got to know her story very well. And um, she doesn't make it into the book. She's not in the book very much because she was canonized so recently, although her cause was proposed in the late 19th century. But I do all I can to get her um, better known around here. She arrived in Indiana in 1840, one year before Father Soren arrived in Vincennes, Indiana. And um, she was a great help to him. They had a, a, a nemesis in the local bishop who made both of their lives horrible in some ways. At one point, he locked Mother Theodore in his room for in, in a room in his house for 24 hours until she agreed to do what he said. And that's a wonderful. And he's story. been canonized, right? Hmm? And he's been canonized, the bishop. No, no, no. He he he. he gave her this ultimatum, she agreed to leave. That joke, I'm sorry. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> but, you often get it. But anyway, she gave Father Soren two oxen and a cart when they started the farm in Vincennes. So I like to hmm. speak of her around here as Notre Dame's first benefactor in America. <laughs> um, and that name is not taking off. That, is, that branding is not working so far. So anything uh, that all of you can do to help... Um, uh, but, you know, the yoke that, that Father Soren brought with him when he traveled up north is, is hang, was hanging in the old Corby Hall. And, um, you know, I believe it's the one that she gave to him. So that's an actually really important story. And I teach women's history, so I'm really interested in how the fingerprints of women are all over this church and this nation, but they're so rarely named. So she's a story that, that sticks with me quite a bit, yeah. Uh, George, a final comment? forget that St. Mary McKillop was excommunicated. Yep. by a cranky local bishop who could not handle her. Well, she was excommunicated in part because she had um, reported a priest who was uh, molesting children, hmm. and that priest was removed, um, but his cronies uh, retaliated and spread rumors that she was an alcoholic, hmm. that she was mismanaging funds, and yes, uh, she was actually excommunicated. So um, this is a, a common theme, but I think McKillop's story, certainly in, in the last year, as we've had new revelations about sexual abuse, uh, her story, I think she's a, a, a hero whose story, not American, but a story, a story worth telling. 
I've been reading uh, Saint of Our Own for um, uh, in preparation for this event. It's a wonderful book. I encourage you to get it. I think we have actually copies uh, outside, and I'm sure uh, Professor Cummings would be uh, more than willing to sign them. Please join me in thanking Professor Cummings and. and, and.